Are you in need of a pace clock? Looking to finally upgrade those ancient analog clocks? The Swim Nerd Pace Clock is the most innovative digital pace clock. Go to swimpractice.com to check it out. Okay, Roland Schumann, welcome back to my podcast, man. How are you doing? Great. Always an honor. Honored <laughs> to be back a second time. It's been a while. It has. And, uh, you know, we, we talked about some stuff on the first one. If people want to go back and check that out, they can. But we're going to talk about um, you on this one and, and your career. I mean, you've, you've uh, had one of the most successful careers any sprinter has ever had in the history of swimming. Uh, for, for many years, you've been one of the top sprinters in the world. Uh, certainly um, a, a great ambassador for your country, South Africa, and the things that you've done um, coming out of that country and, and the things that you continue to do for that country. So, I mean, I just wanted to get you back on and really talk about your career and, and, I have some talking points that you and I have gone over a little bit in terms of just, um, you know, some broader topics, I think, that are interesting to people. So I think we'll dig into those, okay? Yeah, we last time was a, a different interesting topic. So hopefully this will be a, a different kind of interesting topic to people. Yeah, well, listen, man, you've, you've been at the top of the game for 20 years now, you know, if not longer. So it's like there's so much to learn from you and there's so much to celebrate as well. And I think that's, that's why I love this podcast is because we can, we can celebrate people. We can celebrate achievement. We can learn, you know, from um, the good, the bad uh, and everything in between and um, just try and share some stories too. I think people love stories. So in terms of just uh, your career itself and, and getting into swimming and how it started for you, where, where were the beginnings of it? I mean, I think back to when I was about five years old, one of my best friends at the time was, you know, his parents wanted him to get into swimming. So it was a matter of going with him and watching him get into a backyard swimming pool and being forced to swim. And I hated the sounds of that. It didn't look good at all. Uh, I was the kid that was outside laughing at him, pointing at him while he was struggling to swim and gasp for water. Uh, about a year or two later, I was diagnosed with asthma. Um, uh, pulmonologist suggested to my parents that I actually start swimming at that point, but it wasn't something that I was really enthusiastic to do. Uh, I played soccer, cricket, rugby, tennis, field hockey, you name it. I represented my state team for soccer. I represented my state team in, in cricket. So I gravitated more towards team sports at that point in time and, and didn't like the idea of going in swimming. Uh, nonetheless, got enrolled, swam for about three weeks. And that was it. It was the middle of winter in South Africa, and I just didn't want to be in the water. It was a small pool, really cold water. So I just remember the smell of that, that chlorine, and that was it. I just wanted to go be a part of sports teams. It was just the worst thing in the whole wide world to me. And uh, when I ended up, I went to high school, and I remember there's a pivotal moment. Uh, I was, uh, you know, in South Africa, you have houses. So if, you, if anybody's ever watched Harry Potter, the way they've broken into their houses, we have inner house sports, sort of like they had the inner house Quidditch. We have inner house swimming, inner house track, inner house rugby, whatever it is. And, you know, I was tasked to swim the 50 butterfly. Number short course meters, shallow pool, dove in, turned, came off the wall, and I just couldn't swim butterfly anymore. So I put my feet down. And I ended up walking the rest of the way for, for my first ever 50 butterfly. <laughs> and that was, that was embarrassing because I, you know, I, I didn't know how to do it and wasn't able to complete it. And people were laughing at me, but 
you know, it was a year later that a really, really cute girl ended up uh, you know, coming to my high school. She was a year below me or grade below me. And she was on the swim team. And being the shy guy that I was at that point in time, and I think most people may have just gone and said, hey, I'm so-and-so, would you like to go on a date? I had this elaborate plan. I was going to start swimming. I was going to show how good I was as a swimmer. And then we would go on a date and, you know, I'd win her over and it would be love kind of thing. And it sort of happened that way. Started swimming, swam for several months. We started dating, only ended up dating for three months. Her family got transferred out of the city. But there was something then in swimming that I found that I, I loved and identified. And it was something that I continued to work on, you know, really, really hard until well, still continue to. Uh, that's a good story, man. Fell in love uh, with uh, a girl and the pool at the same time. That's good. But, um, you know, one of my coaches, David Marsh, talks about athleticism a lot. And, and he was one of the first swim coaches, uh, you know, many years ago to try and produce uh, swimmers to be athletes, you know. And, and as the years have gone on, we've, we've started to specialize more and more. We seem, we seem to be of getting away from that. Um, you know, parents are wanting to push their kids into swimming earlier and get them to pick a stroke, pick a distance, you know, uh, at a very young age. And I've had some conversations recently with some other people on the podcast who have said that their parents didn't do that. So that's a good thing. But in terms of athleticism, I think when I, when I think of somebody that is an athlete, I, I think of you. You were one of those guys that came in um, at a younger age, you know, 1920, and, and you could tell immediately this, this person was athletic. This person was, was good. Um, they could jump, you know, you, well, I'm talking about you, you could jump, you could, you know, you just look like you could do, you could kick a soccer ball from, you know, the 50 yard line, or you could dunk a basketball or whatever it was, you know, like you could just tell. So I think you were kind of the first breed of this, this pure athlete that um, came into swimming and, and could, do a lot of things and so we kind of built our system around that that theory that method of of being a, a total athlete and trying to become better at certain things and and i saw those things in you that i just wanted to mention that but in terms of um you know your growth through south africa and then how did you end up deciding to go to america and swim in america First and foremost, I mean, I think you, I want to just thank you for acknowledging that and, and seeing that it was something that was always important to me. Um, I think by virtue of the fact that I'd just done so many other sports and competed across the board, um, I was athletic. So, I mean, the beautiful thing is my parents, if I, if I was a kid and I, when I was a kid and I started a sport, my parents wanted me to be committed to that sport um, for the season. You know, it was a question of starting something and then stopping something. And I just loved being at school and doing sports. It was just something that you know, really resonated within me. So it didn't matter what it was, as long as I was competing, as long as I was getting out there and, and practicing, um, playing, whatever it might be. Uh, I, and one of my coaches, at, so my high school coach, Gavin Ross, he currently lives in the States, was instrumental in sort of that journey. There are very few coaches in South Africa that, have this idea that I'm going to prepare you as best as I can. I know that I have a limited capacity in my ability to coach you. Um, and when we reach that sort of tipping point, I want you to go to a different coach. I want you to go overseas. I really want you the best for you. What you're seeing, what you have seen, what you continue to see in South Africa is these coaches that 
want to be on the national team. They want to be a national team coach, the head coach, an Olympic coach. And they do prepare athletes and they can prepare them really well, but they get to a point, that tipping point that I referenced, that it becomes to the detriment of the athlete, the detriment of the swimmer, that they continue to hold on and don't allow them to experience something else, different competitions, um, uh, different training methodologies, whatever it might be. And Gavin was really instrumental in, in saying to me right from the beginning, I know I have a specific skill set. I think you're a great athlete. I don't know how good I can get you, but my goal is to get you to the point where you can go to the United States. And that's what he's, he did, and just so unselfishly. And you know, there are very few people out there that I've come across that, that are that unselfish in the way they, you know, they work with their athletes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that, um, look, it's, it's a fine line, you know, you can understand the, the coaches, you know, in their home countries. And, I, and I've had this struggle with Australian coaches as well. I'm like, why are there certain kids that stay in a system where clearly if they were given a chance in America, they could thrive and they could grow. Um, and then other, other people, you know, like, uh, like a Chad LeClo who, who ends up staying in the system and, and performing very well. And, th and there's similar kids in Australia to that as well. So, I think it's um, it's certainly a, a fine line, but I think there uh, there are people that would do better in in each of those scenarios, you know. And and I was certainly someone like you who um, was always clearly going to do better by yeah. coming to America and being in a system like that. And and so I'm glad I made that decision. Um, was that difficult for you and your family to make that decision? <laughs> no, I left three days after the end of high school. You know, it's really gotten harder over time more than anything else. I think, you know, part of this, part of that journey in trying to find the right school was, was difficult. I remember, you know, I was, I was pretty good. I, I mean, I was 24-0 in the 50 freestyle and sent a letter through to ASU and got a reply back from ASU. And they said, you know, based on your current times, we're not going to be able to give you more than about a 15, 20% scholarship. Mm. And that really broke me because I thought, you know, I really thought I, I was better than what I was at that point in time. I also knew that coming from South Africa with an exchange rate as poor as it was and with my family's financial position, I just wasn't, if, if I didn't get a full ride anywhere, it was going to be very, very difficult to me, for me to go to the States. So that's, pre that's pretty common for most kids yeah. coming from South Africa too. Exactly. And most kids coming from around the world. I mean, it's very rare that we can match the US dollar in terms of exchange rates at all. Yeah. But, you know, so the journey saw me, Iowa State, I got a, you know, full ride from offer from Iowa State, several other schools, but, you know, there were two that stood out to me, um, Auburn and ASU. And I, I really wanted to go to Auburn more than anything else. That was sort of my, the top of my list because I'd seen the culture. You know, for, for me, what I did was I'd started ordering Swimming World magazines years back mm. I want to learn about swimming and I knew I wanted to go to the States at that point in time. So for me, like who are the best teams? And then when you look at the best teams, you know, what is the camaraderie? What is the environment? What is the culture that they've built around it? And I saw that at, uh, at Auburn more than anywhere else. And as a result, and by virtue of that, I really wanted to go and chatted with Dave, uh, David Marsh a couple of times. And you know, just was, they weren't in a position to be able to give a full ride, which I completely understood because of, how many good swimmers there were on the team. <laughs> but I remember a message, you know, sent in this, you know, I just wanted to know everything. 
you know, so I sent him a whole bunch of questions and Kim Bracken, the assistant coach at that time was, you know, didn't reply to or didn't forward it to him. She actually replied to me and she's like, good luck answering all these questions. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, it was, it was things like that that kind of stood out and, and eventually had the opportunity to pay a visit to, um, to the University of Arizona. I met up with Rake and Rick, Frank. And I mean, aside from there being very little trees and it being a desert, I, there was something about Arizona that I loved and really gravitated towards. I knew uh, there was a, just this innate knowing that I would be good here. I, I could be, you know, quote unquote, safe, that I'd be taken care of, that I'd be able to grow and perform. And that's sort of what made that transition for myself and for my mom and my family a lot easier, knowing that I was going to be going into a system and an environment that was going to be geared for my growth and my development and ultimately my success. So as difficult as it was to say goodbye to everybody, it was really easy knowing that I was going to be going into something that was for my benefit. Yeah. So I have to blame Kim Bracken for us not being teammates, huh? Yeah, exactly. We would be teammates. <laughs> Damn you, Kim. Uh, <laughs> no, that's hilarious. But so, uh, well, you, you ended up going to a place where there was a, a, a bunch of South Africans. So you, you fit in well there anyway, I'd imagine. Um, was it for me when I when I came to America, it was like something completely different. All of a sudden I was part of a team and I was I was around guys that were better than me. And, um, you know, people that would get in your face if you were doing well or if you weren't doing well you know it was just like right there whereas in australia it was kind of like every man for themselves people left you alone and this was a completely different environment i just i ate it up i thrived was that similar for you yes and no it, it took me a little bit of time i mean i was so fresh off the boat and i remember you know getting into i got in in the middle of winter so obviously south africa our school years start in january and end in november december flew out after that and you know i remember one situation coffee culture wasn't big in south africa at that point in time and i remember after one saturday morning workout it was ice cold had the opportunity to go with the kids or my teammates to starbucks for the very very first time and you know there's a line of swimmers i'm towards the back and this person orders a caramel frappuccino with half and half and the next person orders something that sounds even more elaborate. And not knowing anything about these coffees, you know, it gets to me and the, the lady or the gentleman says, hey, you know, what would you like to drink? And just deer in the headlights, so frozen, didn't know. I just said, could I just give a, could I, would you just give me a cup of water, please? You know, so it was a real adjustment getting into the U.S. and learning the system and, and finding my level of comfort um, because I'd been on a really, really small team where I was sort of the, the big shot, it was really difficult initially. But I had people there like Coley Stickles, um, several of the freshmen, Peter Johnson, a whole bunch of other people uh, that really helped sort of pull me in. And there was a family down there that sort of helped pull me in and make me feel more at home. Um, Rake was there uh, in a certain capacity, just as a fellow South African to help show me the way here and there. But it was really a a tough initial adjustment period, but one that I ended up thriving in. I think the coaches there quickly realized that if they back me into a corner, um, you'll get me to perform. And that's something that stood with me for years and years and years. And 
I think that was kind of bred from an early age. My father passed away when I was 15, 16 years of age. And, you know, at that point in time, I sort of had to focus on being the, the, the man, the quote unquote man in the family and, you know, taking care of myself and taking care of my family. So whenever I felt like I got backed into a corner, it was, you know, sort of this, oh shit, you know, best believe now I'm going to actually perform and be required to perform. Talk to me about that a little bit backed into a corner, because like, I think, I think you know this about yourself and certainly something that I've heard from the past. And I've, look, I've known you for 20 years. So I've seen, I've seen growth in you just as you've seen growth in me, you know, but I think um, the word on the street was that you were a, notoriously a little bit more difficult to deal with at a younger age. Than- no, come on. <laughs> you said that. <laughs> <laughs> than some of the other athletes, I mean, well, for whatever it was, I mean, you know, you can tell me what was your assessment of yourself? Did you have a chip on your shoulder? I mean, you just talked about it there in terms of like being backed into a corner and getting the best. What do you mean exactly? I had a level of expectation on myself and I had a level of expectation on the people around me. And I think it was bred from an unhealthy place, obviously, but I had, you know, for me, it was like, I want to go to the Olympics. I want to win a gold medal. You have to match up with me. You have to match up that energy. If you're my teammates and you're around me, you've got to be, you've got to be the same. Mm. And if you're not having that same energy and that same intensity, well then, then get the hell out of here. Cause I don't want to be around you. Right. You know, so it was, uh, yeah, I think it was the intention, as harsh as it was, was pure. It was pure intent because I wanted the best out of myself. I was doing the best with the, you know, the abilities I had at that point in time and my best understanding of the world at that point in time. Um, it, it, it helped me get to great successes. It wasn't healthy. Um, and I burnt a lot of bridge and lost a lot of friends because of that. But I expected the most out of the people around me, whether it was friends, family, teammates, and then I expected that out of myself. So I wanted to talk the talk and walk the walk. And, every, you know, I had days in workout where we'd get given send-offs or given times and I wouldn't make them and I'd lose my shit. Now, it, w- it wouldn't be frequent, but it'd be frequent enough for me to be really pissed off and really upset about, about my results or a race or a workout that I'd take that back home for several hours, maybe several days, eventually get over it and, and resolve the issue. But it was something that continued to, you know, blister and fester in many ways. What was that from, do you think? Was it, were you like this before you lost your father or did losing your father have a major impact on you like that? Or, you know, talk to me about where this came from. I think having having lost my father was a component to it. Um, my mom, my mom and dad got separated when I was probably six. Okay. So I think there was a lot of aggression. There was a lot of anger. Having felt like I'd been let down in a, in many ways. Right. So I think that sort of manifested itself on um, my mom. Unfortunately, dated a very very abusive man that was very verbally physically abusive to us. So it was something that I think it showed me or revealed to me a person's nature and capacity. And I, you know, I sort of took that on at a point. I became angry. I became aggressive. Mm. Why did somebody stand up for me? So it became taking this weight of the world on my shoulders kind of thing. And, and always, you know, I just remember, you know, how abusive he could be and how I would feel backed into a corner and I wasn't able to fight. You know, I mean, you're a, you're an eight year old kid and there's a, 45 year old man or 40 year old man trying to like wailing on you. Mm. Like, what do you do? You can't do anything. So I think it just put me to a place where 
as I got older and I found myself, you know, in situations where I could fight back, like swimming, I could fight back because that was a talent that I had. So I would fight back by trying to get a better result, by having the people around me, you know, trying to be up their level, bring their best game. So I definitely think that there are significant root causes for that. Obviously, at that point in time in my life, I didn't have the capacity to deal with it or didn't necessarily have the tools to deal with it. But as time has gone on and there's been a, you know, an acceptance of all of this and an understanding that, you know, that dude was also just human. Um, you know, I think it's bred a lot more compassion and, and empathy for, for myself, people in that situation, and, and definitely added to, to the way I look at things now. Yeah, it must feel good to be able to talk about this now, verbalize it and um, contextualize it, understand it, you know, for sure. Uh, it, was it was that impossible for you back then? Was that was that just too difficult to really even understand for yourself? Or it was more of like you were just in the moment and you were living and, and like you said, you burned some bridges along the way, um, you know, unintentionally, I'm sure. But, you know, you know uh, is that something that was very difficult to verbalize back then? I believe so. Uh, I mean, you feel a certain amount of shame. Uh, if, if you know somebody's been, you know, you've been beaten up several times by an adult, it's just my, my mom knew, my dad knew, but you don't want to tell anybody else. Yeah. You don't want to tell the friends around you. And obviously that hadn't, you know, that was when I was 13, 13 or 14 and, and never since kind of thing. But, you know, as you get to the ages of 19 or 18, 19, 20, I might not have known why you know, I had that aggression, that anger, that level of frustration. So without knowing the root cause, now I can obviously look back and, and have a clearer understanding of it. But, you know, in college, I was just, I was very difficult to deal with. I was very, very difficult to coach. I always had my opinions. Um, I always had my thoughts, understandings. I was always researching. I remember going and swimming with, um, with Mike Bottom and Anthony and those guys at the race club in 2001. And just because I've, I've always had this thirst for knowledge, I want to understand myself. I want to understand the body. I want to understand swimming, um, playing golf. I want to understand everything about it. So I went out for the summer to train with uh, Mike Bottom at, at Cal and Berkeley. And, and I remember just like loving the environment, loving the camaraderie, seeing what I had not been to the athletes around me, seeing, you know, how Mike coached. And it was just, it was really, really, revealing for me in so many ways that this was something that I was not doing and that I wasn't helping foster. And the beautiful thing about being there with Mike and Nort was every single day, like Nort would come out with a stack of articles or a article or a motivational piece. And I got back to Arizona after that summer with a stack of articles and, and things about swimming and mental, <clears throat> and just like mental preparation training. And I gave it to Frank and I was so excited I was like, Frank, this is what we did here in Cal. You know, it's just amazing. You know, maybe if you read through this, you, there might be some insights for you. And he took the stack and, you know, he just, he threw it in the trash can next to him. He says, Roland Schumann, there's more than one way to skin a cat. <laughs> and, and I got it. And I mean, I understood it. But there was a level of frustration there because it's just like, these guys have been beating us year in and year out. They're producing sprinters and athletes that are great. And there's two coaches there that are, you know, some of the best coaches of the world. Why wouldn't you want to learn? Just read through it. You're right. They're, they're, there's more than one way to skin a cat, but read through it. You know, and 
there was a level of frustration in the fact that he wasn't willing to do that. And, you know, there were, you know, a couple more pivotal moments where I, I was, I got to be really lazy. I would bitch and moan, complain. I wouldn't want to do sets. And, and that wasn't, that wasn't who I wanted to be. And Frank, it was after 2003 world champs. Uh, Frank Bush sat down with me because I'd had an awful world championships. I, I swam off for first reserve. Time that I went to swim off for first reserve would have seated me third going into semifinals. So that was tough in and of itself. But got back to feet or Tucson. Frank sat me down. He said, hey, Roland, you know what? I love you. You've been an amazing asset to the swimming program. But if you're not going to change your attitude, if you're not going to change the way you, you see things, look at things, work out, we don't want you bitching and moaning. We don't want you complaining. You need to buy into this. If you're not willing to buy into this program, then unfortunately, we're going to have to see you go. And it was one of the, the realest, most difficult conversations anybody had ever had with me. And I was in tears and really disappointed, like how dare he sort of attitude. But I intrinsically knew that he was right. Mm. And I spent about 20, 30 minutes, you know, just sort of crying and thinking about things and went down to the locker room, got my suit on, went back up to the pool deck and said, Frank, you're right. I'm ready. Let's do this. You know, and it was, and obviously after that, there were, there were still moments where, you know, I bitched and moaned, but for me it was, okay, well, this was my commitment and let's see more of the positive behavior versus the negative behavior. Right. And Frank and I and Rick and I, we, we had conversations a lot about that because there were still moments where that old attitude, the, the bitching and moaning would creep in, but knowing that the, the, the goal obviously was to be my better self at that point in time. Um, you know, we try to take that into consideration as often as possible, but one of the most difficult conversations anybody's ever had with me, but definitely one of the most imp impactful and, and needed ones at that point in time. Well, it seems like it because, I mean, you're obviously super talented. You came into the NCA in 99 and we're talking about 2003 here and, and you've had success in those years. You know, you've gone to the Sydney Olympics and you've gone to world championships and I'm sure you went to, well, we had, we had our own um, experience at the 2002 Commonwealth games. <laughs> we, we can talk about that, but, but you obviously weren't fully maximizing your talent at that point. And that wasn't until, 2004 2005 which is after this conversation clearly where you start to really dominate the world of swimming and make an impact breaking world records left and right so we can talk about that but i do want to touch on the incident we had um we 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 had this uh interesting rivalry you and i and i've talked about this before where you were just one of those guys that i could never beat for some reason it doesn't matter what what if i was swimming really fast you were swimming a little faster if i was swimming terrible you're swimming a little bit better than terrible. It was terrible. Yeah. <laughs> it, was it, was terrible. Always, it was always like a hundredth of a second. So in, in 99, I just looked it up. We, we, uh, you beat me by a hundredth of a second in the 50 freestyle at the NCAA championships. And then uh, 2002, we had an interesting moment where at the Commonwealth Games, you know, some of our listeners might not realize how big the Commonwealth Games is, but for Australians and South Africans, it's, uh, it's right up there with the Olympics almost. And so um, it was a huge event for me. And I was in exceptional form at that point in time. And I was racing you, you and I were kind of uh, rivals and, and competitors. And, and I knew that if I was, if I was going to win, I had to get past you. And we had, 
we had this moment in the ready room that you and I kind of shared together. You, you, you had your uh, perspective on it. I have my perspective on it, but just from your perspective, what happened in the ready room in 2002? Oh gosh. Yeah. I mean, like you say, it was you, myself and Mark Foster. We're really yeah. the two or the three top guys in that 50 freestyle. And I remember being in this ready room, we, as South Africans, we didn't have body suits yet. We weren't given any of the full suits or half suits. And I remember you having this beautiful Australian, you know, the blue with the green stitching and the, you know, the, the cross on it and everything, or the, sorry, the stars. But it was, I remember you getting zipped up. You were looking at me. And I think Ashley Callis was behind you zipping you up. Mm. You could see the zip and then it, the zip popped off. Yeah. And Callus's eyes were this big, like he'd done something terribly wrong. You didn't know exactly in that second what it was. And then he started explaining to you what was going on. And then there was this mini freak out like this, you know, from my perspective, it looked like you, there was a stress and, and you, you know, so you got that suit off as quick as you can, uh, popped into a brief. I think you were butt naked in front of all of us getting your, <laughs> oh, sorry, this jammer on as quick as you could get the jammer on so everything's good, calm down. And just as we we're about to start walking out, you know, so just as we we're walking out for the 50 free final, you put your goggles on and your goggles snap open. <laughs> and you have to now run back and, and get another pair. And it was just almost like a comedy of errors. You couldn't have scripted it. And just like, I didn't know what to think. You know, it's just like, oh no, this is, this is awful. But, it, you know, for you to, you know, still come by or come back and swim as well as you did. I mean, that was testament to you and, you know, your mental strength and, and fortitude that you were always in that race. Well, I think it's looking back, I think it's one of those moments where, you know, you put so much pressure on yourself because, you know, it, you know that that could be a life changing moment for you. And, you. and you're thinking about this like I was thinking about it subconsciously like this could change your life you know for for us as like i said this is a big event and it's um you know live on television back in australia and if i become commonwealth champion in the 50 freestyle then i can make money from this i could get celebrity from it i could i could become somebody that you know could earn a living from from swimming and, and at the time i had a child um kira was was young and so it, it was it was life-changing in that sense so i was thinking to myself that when when you shouldn't be thinking those things you know and so when that when that zipper popped it wasn't it certainly wasn't um you know any of my doing but i guess there was a nervous energy that came with that of like oh shit like i've got to get this suit off so i remember stripping it off running around naked in the ready room <laughs> and just bending uh, over and look i couldn't find my bag i was so stressed i couldn't find my bag so i was all the bags look the same you know they're all australian bags so i'm bending over in front of everybody and looking for a suit butt naked find one put it on and and then i guess it was it was difficult for me to you know calm down at that stage so as i put my goggles on my hands are shaking a little bit and snap the goggles pop and uh, i just remember the lady at the front saying, we can't wait, you know, we've got to go. It's live on television. So I remember you guys leaving and I'm thinking to myself, I'm going to miss this race. And it was, it was at the parade. You had to walk all the way down to the other end of the pool. Right. And I just remember thinking to myself like, Oh, I'm, I'm done. Like, this is ridiculous. It's over. Anyway, I find a pair of goggles 
and I run down to the other end. And just as I get to the other end, they introduce me. And I remember thinking to myself, like, all right, take, take an inventory here. And I, and I put my hand up on my uh, neck and it was just like, my pulse was 200, you know, just. And uh, I thought, well, the only way I can compete now is if I, if I take a few deep breaths and, and just try and relax within mm. the next, you know, 30 seconds. And uh, that's what I did. And, and so I felt pretty good, but it, it, you know, the 50 freestyle is one of those races where I, I held my breath the whole way. I'm sure you did too. And so yeah. I remember getting out to the lead and feeling pretty good, but I remember seeing you right next to me. And then, and then the lack of oxygen started to seep in. And I remember just you and I going head to head, just stroke for stroke. And I stretched out and I could just see your fingertips just in front of me. And uh, you, you won the gold medal by one hundredth of a second. Uh, And, and uh, look, I I don't have any regrets, but it was certainly lessons learned in that in terms of, um, it helped me become a better coach, honestly, in, in terms of keeping people calm under pressure. And uh, so, but yeah, it was, it was a crazy situation. That was kind of our careers, you know, back and yeah. forward like that. Uh, we ended up having a similar experience in, in Athens in 2004, where you're the fastest qualifier for the final in lane four. And I was the second fastest qualifier in lane five. We, we went head to head a lot, but in terms of your career, you, you certainly um, 2004 was a big deal for you where yeah. you, you really broke out at that meet. Um, but I've also heard you talk about the disappointment as well. So you have, you know, you do win Olympic gold in the relay for South Africa and have this incredible moment as a country and as a team and, and as an individual there, but, but then you felt um, a a huge disappointment in not fulfilling your own individual destiny of winning Olympic gold, even though you won medals at that meet. So talk to me about 2004 a little bit. I think, you know, if, if you'd spoken to me a week before the Olympics and said, I guarantee you walk away with this Olymp- from this Olympics with a gold, a silver, and a bronze. Um, you win the relay, you break a world record, you win silver in the 100 and bronze in the 50, would you be a happy man? <laughs> and I would have said to you, oh my gosh, that, that's like a dream come true. But I think then having, having swam that relay and led off in a 48-1 um, and been as fast as I was, yeah, I, I think that had me... S- you know, I, I believe that set me up for winning gold in the in the hundred and and definitely winning gold in the fifty because of how good my start was at that point in time. I knew there was nobody in the world that mm. could touch me in terms of the start. Mm. Um, so I think that's where a level of disappointment comes from. In the hundred, it was you know we always knew that that Peter was going to charge. We always knew, but unfortunately, we'd never. Rick and I, Frank and I, we'd never discussed, what do I do? What will you do when that happens? Because it's not if it happens. What is your strategy going to be when Peter comes swimming up, up towards you? We never dealt with that. So there wasn't ever anything that was discussed or a strategy in place. Something I, obviously I could have done on my own, you know, but it was never something that the coaches and I discussed. And I think that was detrimental because you know, I knew it was going to happen. And yet when it did happen, there was a level of, of, of a loss of focus. And, and as you know, if, if you're in a race and if a lot of viewers and listeners will know that if you're in a race and you lose that focus for that one second, all of a sudden it becomes extern, an external focus point trying to get back into it. it takes a couple of seconds. And, and I believe that's sort of where I lost the race. You know, had I, 
had the understanding, had I had the maybe the lessons of, you know, it's going to come, you know, he's going to come up on your right hand side. When that happens, let's have a contingency. I want you to focus on this and not even say instead of this is I want you to focus on your breathing. I want you to focus on in those few moments, work on your body alignment, whatever it is, just having, you know, empowered me with the right tools and the strategies. And, you know, for the longest time I saw it as I, I lost gold. And not that I'd won silver. And it was a, a huge sense of loss within me. And, and part of that was because I was seeing my value in the world and as an athlete, as, you know, the medals. If you don't want gold medal, you know, you're not going to be as famous. You're not going to make as much money. You're not going to be, you know, uh, you know you're not going to go down in history as an Olympic gold medalist. Nobody, nobody really remembers the first and second, or second and third place finishers, but everybody remembers the gold medal. All these cliches that, you know, I'd been told in my life and that you start to believe. And I remember walking around the village that night, just so disappointed, so, you know, aggravated, sad that I'd lost the gold medal. You know, and it was just, I was just doing the best I could with the tools that I had at that point in time. It wasn't, it wasn't for the best, or it wasn't the best for me to think that way. But then again, as you know, I came back and I refocused. I was like, all right, you know what? F this. Okay. Okay. I didn't win the gold, but, you know, we didn't expect, expect me to win gold in the 100. That's sort of a, you know, an added bonus. 50 is my jam. You know, I'm going to win the 50 now because I know my start's better than anybody else's. I know my first 35 meters is better than anybody else's in the world. Mm-hmm. So best believe that I'm going to utilize that. And sort of refocused. And once again, I'd say, I had put myself in a corner, managed to bounce back out of it and remember getting ready for the 53 and prelims felt amazing. Semifinals felt amazing. And then because I wanted that race so bad in finals, you know, I, it, there wasn't that same level of relaxation that I had experienced on the starts previously, especially not in the 100 freestyle final. I know if I'd had the same start that I'd had in the 100 freestyle final, in the 50, I, I would have won that race, but I was so amped up. I was so aggressive. And when I pulled on that block, I yanked myself straight down instead of out to have a good start and spend way too much time underwater. And, and at that point in time, it was, I came up with everybody else or just slightly ahead and was just trying to stay ahead of the people around me. And, and I didn't. And that's also right. Dude, you came up ahead of me. I know that you smoked me on that start. <laughs> didn't matter what you did. You, you always smoked me on that start. I, I just didn't. I wasn't uh, athletic like you. And I didn't have that underwater dolphin kick. You had a killer. You, I mean, your entry was clean and your, your kick was just so good at that time. It was just nothing I could do to come close. I had to try and figure out how to make it up in the swim. But Gary Hall uh, Jr. said something interesting. You know, when I interviewed him, he, he felt like you were... The, the man to beat in that one and, and he and he said he he had something in his toolkit in terms of what he was going to say to you to try and get in your head but he said he felt like he didn't need to say it did you did you notice something about yourself in the ready room like i i mean i'm sure you just kind of touched on it there where you were just probably over aggressive like over over wanting it i mean would you change anything about that situation i think uh, remembering back i was pretty calm and pretty focused in the ready room I think it was, I think I had the switch where in the ready room, I could still be slightly playful depending on the situation. Like we were super playful in the, in the relay ready room, mm-hmm. looking, I was standing in front of the TV and uh, I guess I 
Alex Popov was standing, I was sitting behind me trying to watch TV and he said, Hey, Roland, is your dad a glass maker? Obviously meaning, you know, I'm not transparent. So I said, you know, my dad, that's amazing. <laughs> you know, so just not feeding into it, um, just being playful. So remembering back to the, the Athens radio room for the 50, I think there was still a component of that. Um, obviously a little bit more pressure, a little bit more wanting, but I felt like once we were, you know, led out to our blocks, there was a, a switch that flipped and standing there. I mean, I've watched the video just standing there behind the video and no, and in my face is a, it's a strong face. It's mm. just like, I, this is my race. I'm going to go get this race. You know, and I, I heard the comments that, that uh, Gary said, and I mean, I, it's fortunate that he didn't say what he did, but also I think, you know, my dad had been a motivation for me for so long. I mean, he passed, um, he passed. And two days later, I swam my best ever 50 freestyle time to qualify for my first South African trials meet. Mm. You know, so it's, I mean, I feel flattered that he felt that I was, you know, one of the ones to beat. Um, they've always had a huge amount of respect for Gary and his family and stayed at their house many times in Phoenix. So it's, you know, it, it, it feels honored to be considered in that same vein as people he's watching out for or thinks may in fact beat him. Yeah. I mean, I, I couldn't figure it out. I mean, he, he just had a way of getting his hand on the wall. That's for sure. I don't know. He, he did it. He did it back to back and, and, uh, he, he beat okay. us, beat us both times, but, but you're real. I mean, you're huge breakout. Yeah. If you could say that after winning Olympic gold medal, but, um, I mean, 2005, you were just on fire. What was so special about 2005 in, in Montreal? Actually, I had an incident. I don't know if I've ever told you this, but I was sitting in the grandstand in Montreal and you had swum the 50 fly. Have I told you the story? No, I don't think so. And, um, I was sitting with the Australian team. We're watching the 50 fly and you, you do what you do. Did you break the world record in the final? The semis and the finals. Yeah. Yeah. So we're watching the final and obviously, you, but in the final, you break the world record. And I remember one of the coaches, um, Shannon Rowlandson, uh, turned around to everybody and was like, wow, he's going to smash the 50 freestyle. <laughs> and I looked at him. I was like, you mother. I was like, really? Uh, I got to race that guy in a few days, and that's what you're telling me? <laughs> Thanks a lot, you know. So, but yeah, you looked incredible. That that mean you just looked like you were everything was uh, on. Um, so, what was so special about that year for you? It was once again straight after straight after Athens. I I wanted it more. You know, I I, I felt like I'd let myself down. I felt like I'd left or let my country down i felt like i'd let my teammates down so it was you know obviously i hadn't um and everybody was really really proud of me but i had this idea and this belief that I, now i backed myself into a corner again so it was a, as soon as i got back to tucson went straight into training as hard as as hard as i could trying to be stronger than i ever could trying to um, swim faster than i ever could try to be more flexible than i ever was and it was and it, it worked really well i think i was you know, I was training really well. It was just training blocks, being able to put in great blocks of training, not being lazy, um, pushing myself, being a good teammate to others, and in turn, having them be good to me and, and help push me to greater success. And the Staying healthy of, as well, I guess. Yeah, staying healthy. It's, I mean, I'd had a really bad shoulder injury in 2001, and it, 
from 2001 on, I've always been really healthy. I haven't struggled with too many injuries at all since then. So it was exactly like you said, it's a question of being healthy and injury free. Those are, those are huge, astronomically important in, in that specific journey. Um, and then the summer of 2005, Rick DeMont actually had taken the summer off and Frank was, was my coach and Frank obviously knows what he's doing. You know, just, uh, had a really good summers worth of preparation and hadn't, hadn't traditionally been a 50 butterfly long course before that world championships. The, the 50 fly for me was a pet event and opportunity to race. We did not expect me to, to win a medal at all. The hope was just to get a, a few swims in and sort of just warm me up for the meet and warm me up for the hundred freestyle and the 50 freestyle and dove in in the morning and something just clicked in my fly and I swam really fast. And I was like, man, I'm, I just missed the world record, mm. you know, and then being able to go and break it in semifinals and then to be the first man to break 23 seconds in the final was, was like, gee, where is this is, this is what I'm talking about. Mm. You know, now everything's starting, starting to come together a little bit. So it was really, really exciting for me. And it's just that sort of that confidence continued to breed more confidence and more relaxation. I'd always been a very much a, you know, a cerebral and like and very feeling-based swimmer. You know, I, if I felt really, really good in the water, I could swim really, really fast. If I felt awful, it was slightly, slightly more difficult to swim fast. But there were obviously times in my career that I had. But for me, the you know what I really, really wanted was to feel good, um, because then it was just like the snowball effect. Because then I knew everything else was going to come around. Yeah. Yeah, that was a super year, man. You just looked incredible. Um, you, look, you looked untouchable, really. It didn't look like anybody could come close to the way that you were swimming. You really revolutionized sprinting, you know. It's just like, wow, I didn't realize somebody could swim that fast and look that good. So it was pretty incredible. Um, I mean, you've, you've had such a long career. And I was, as you were talking, I was just thinking about all the people that you've swum against, you know, from, from Popoff at, at his best. Um, to the current swimmers, you know, I mean, you're, you've swum against, uh, you know, Caleb Dressel as well. I mean, you've, you've, you've raced everybody in between. So in terms of uh, rivals for you and, and people that bought out the best in you or, um, you know, people that were difficult for you to, to beat or, you know, tell me about that. Did you have rivals in your own mind? I think the biggest rivalry I probably ever had was with Rake. Um, the Rake Nietling. Him and I, being both from South Africa, he swam distance events like everybody knows and, and started migrating from the 1,500 and 400 down to the you know, 50 and the 100 and was really successful with that. You know, in 2004, you know, 2003, 2004, we were number one and two in South Africa and we kept on racing each other. And, you know, I hated the fact that he was swimming my event, that he was wanting to beat me now. And it just, and he hated the fact that I was faster than him. And it's, you know, we're, we're both good friends, but it's this level of competition that I know that you saw with um, somebody like Caesar and Fred. You know, ultimately, that competition drives you to find a way to be better. And it, and it really did day in and day out. It's not even a question of Rake and I would see each other at international meets and, and push each other there. Like we would see each other in training every single day. Rick, what did he go? Okay, I know I got to go faster than that. You know, doing stand-ups, whatever it was in the weight room, he was always way stronger than me, but that forced me 
to try and be stronger than him, uh, to find ways to be faster than him, um, you know, to start controlling the things that I could, you know, he's better than me in these, this way, shape or form. Now, how can I be better than him? All right, well, uh, I need to work on my explosiveness because that's naturally where I'm better. Um, so a little question of trying to find ways within my own capacity that I could get better and, and improve upon, knowing that I was never going to be rake. But the goal was always to beat rake. You know, yeah. So that, that was probably one of the biggest um, rivalries we've ever had. And I'm trying to, I mean, other people, man, it's just, everybody was a rival to some capacity. Yeah. You know, and it was bad rivalries, bad rivalries in the sense that, you know, I hated losing. I was a sore loser. And it was, you know, I, just, just because I was, you know, there's no excuse for it. It's just, I hated losing, but I used that going forward. And I think one of the things that's helped me over time is, is being okay with finishing second, understanding that my value wasn't in finishing third or second, or even first, it was, you know, people don't, people remember those that have impacted their lives. And I never wanted to go down as a swimmer that remember that guy, he was just a piece of, you know, trash and, he was just always negative and always angry because I've experienced that at Arizona, the swimmers that were that, because that's how they're remembered now, unfortunately. And I'm sure the same with you at, at Auburn and where you've coached and, and your experiences. They're just those athletes that are not fun to be around. Yeah. Tell me this. Why have you swum for so long? Why have you decided to swim for such an extended period of time, you know, from like, you know, early 2000 all the way up to, you know, recently, um, that that's difficult. I mean, I, I remember for me, there was a point in time where I wasn't injured, but I just felt like I had, I got to the point where I had squeezed everything out of myself. Did you never get to that point or why, why do you have you continued to swim in your own words? I think the basic of it all is that I, I love swimming. That's the reality is I started off as a swimmer. Um, I hated it fell in love with a girl and fell in love with swimming and swimming was always my choice. Uh, everything that I've been granted in, in my life in terms of sports and the things I do has been my choice. Nothing, nothing's ever been forced upon me. And swimming was something that I continued to choose because swimming helped me with my growth. Swimming helped me with my development. And, and I felt that was the critical thing was because the lessons that I was needing to learn in life were all being brought to me in the terms of swimming. If, if Frank hadn't had that conversation with me, you know, I would not have, you know, I would have not have grown exponentially in that um, losing medals, uh, losing medals, quote unquote, um, winning, going through all these experiences has been a, you know, this beautiful, you know, symphony of, of growth and learning. And it's, I've felt, I've found no other place in my life that has continually, just continually facilitated this amount of growth and development. Um, Rick as well had this beautiful quote years and years ago that just said, you know, to win is to be the best in the history of your body. For me, I still want to be the best in the history of my body, whatever that looks like. And that's why I've always been committed to this development as growth. It's like when I wanted to have the best start in the world years and years and years ago, I bought VHS videos from the US. I bought a, you know, a camcorder to, to record myself doing thousands and thousands of starts. I bought the Swimming World magazine because I wanted to you know, read articles and see what everybody else was doing. And it's never changed. 
you know, I've always got cameras out, video recording, reading articles, mm-hmm. watching videos, just trying to understand things better. I, I just have this thirst for knowledge that I just want to have, you know, that, that's not being quenched. And it's, it's great because it's helping me grow. It's helping me stay on top of things. And I think there's what I've seen from a lot of people around me is that, you know, you finish college. It's like, oh, but, you know, now it's time to get a job. Based on what? Okay, based on conventional knowledge. That's awesome. If you're not in a, a position where you can carry on swimming, I get it. I have lots of friends that retired straight off to college. But then you find these people getting into their mid-20s, 30s, 35, and they're using their age as a crux. Ah, oh, but I'm 30. You know, I'm too old right now. Well, no, you're not. It's your belief that you are that's, that's sort of your hindrance. Yeah, you know, and obviously I know they'll get to there'll be a time in everybody's life where they're just not capable of doing the things that they used to do, but you're no longer the same person. So for me, it's like this continual development. I'm not the same person I was a year ago or five years ago, or even a day ago because of the amount of cells that we have, you know, regenerate and die on a day-to-day basis. We're, We're literally a different person every single day. So for me, the goal is still growth development what are all these lessons that I'm going to go through that are going to help me and help the people around me? You know, maybe all these lessons in my life has led me to this minute right here with you to be able to convey these messages. And maybe there's somebody out there that just gains one small piece of wisdom from this conversation. I don't know, but for me, it's, it's about long-term, long-term development. I don't want to ever do something for five years. You know, I, I want to be committed to something that I'm passionate about and that I love. And swimming has been it for the longest time and swimming will continue to be a passion and a love of mine for, for the rest of my life. So you know, why not commit everything to it? I don't want to sit on my deathbed one day and be like, man, I should have done more. I should have tried harder because I went through a period in my life where I didn't try as hard as I should have, you know, and, and that's not something I ever want to do with or deal with or experience again on, in terms of swimming or anything else in my life. If you could write a book on your career, what do you think you'd call it? Uh, the initial thinking was my own worst enemy mm-hmm. because I was my own worst enemy. Um, I mean, when I, when I got silver in, the, in NCAAs or at the Olympics, I mean, I was, I was berating myself. I was calling myself the worst things in the world. If, I mean, let's put it this way. If you said what I, I did to myself, to anybody out on the street, you'd probably get beat up really really badly you know and it was okay in my eyes to speak to myself that way but never anybody else um but i think the evolution is you know i'm not sure at this point in time it's it's a my own and maybe something along the lines of just my own best friend because at the end of the day it you know i've come to understand that if you're not comfortable in your own shoes if you're not comfortable within yourself no amount, of, no amount of searching for that around you in gold medals, money, um, fame is going to help satisfy you. What do you think you're going to do um, when the swimming's completely done? It's never going to be completely done. <laughs> Masters, huh? I'm going to swim until I'm 147, Brett. Okay, well. And then I'm going to challenge you and try to beat you by a hundredth of a second. I don't know how you do it, man. I can't get into those cold pools anymore, man. They're not for me, but... Uh... <laughs> But I mean, beyond obviously traveling the world and competing at the highest level, um, you know, what's next for you? 
Yeah, still doing a lot of fit and faster clinics, loving those, loving the fact that we get to be mentors and give back. Yeah. Uh, I think that was something that was, that I felt I didn't have growing up. Yeah. Uh, and now we get to be that for others, uh, helping them with their starts, their turns, their development, their psychology, just the way they think about things has been beautiful when you see several kids just have those aha moments where something clicks and they look at things completely differently. I am executive director for a South African chili oil company that's uh, in the States right now, studying for my real estate exam, certified breathwork practitioner for um, Oxygen Advantage and certified breathwork practitioner for XPT. So doing a real deep dive into you know, understanding the body, continuing to understand the body through, through breath work and, um, you know, various other avenues at this point in time. So it's just, it's all about growth. Um, possibly looking and studying an MBA as well and getting into the big wide world of business. Good stuff, man. Well, listen, I, you've had so many experiences swimming. I do think you need to attack that book. I think, uh, I think you need to put pen to paper and, and write, uh, write a story you know because you've appreciate that <laughs> you know you've like i said you've been there for you know you've been at the top for 20 years you've raced everybody you've you've traveled the world multiple times i mean you've had so many incredible experiences you've you've conversed with the best coaches the best athletes i mean um so there's got to be some great stories and great lessons learned and i think uh, as you said the growth that you've experienced has been pretty phenomenal and i think certainly worth a read so i'd like to read it so um yeah, you'll be uh, you'll be the first copy i appreciate it man listen thanks for doing this again you know i'm glad we got to go up over your career and um it's been been incredible to watch so appreciate this thank you for what you do brad i mean being able to provide a platform like this for people to be able to be honest and open and sincere and you know, hopefully others out there are, are, I know others out there are gaining a lot from this. So we appreciate you being able to provide this platform for us. Yeah. Thanks, man. I, um, that's uh, very humbling. So thanks a lot. I appreciate you saying that. Bye, buddy. Take care. I'll see you at the next clinic. All right. Absolutely. We'll see you soon. Bye, man. Cheers.